This morning we're looking at the, the classic uh, Christmas passage, which tells about the, the conception and the birth of our Lord. And uh, I want to take this opportunity to just clearly say the gospel. And uh, the gospel is a, a word which we kind of throw around a lot in our church. We say we're a gospel-centered church. And the word gospel has the, the potential to uh, turn into a Christian jargon word, which is used a lot. But, you know, is it an empty word? Do we know what it means? Do we know what it's about? And uh, one of the core convictions of our church is that the gospel is something that we all need. The gospel is not just something for some, a new Christian, you know, someone who's not a Christian, and then you've got to preach the gospel to them so that they become a Christian. A, 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 the gospel is for all of us. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian your whole life. You're 80 years old. And the gospel is still your spiritual food. It's still your spiritual life. It's something that we never grow out of. It's something that we need to hear over and over again. And the reason for this is because the gospel is the heart of Christianity, which is troubling for many people because what it means is that at the center of our faith is not something you do, but something you believe. And so people might say, you know, why, why is it that Christians are always saying that if you happen to believe this one little thing about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, if you happen to believe that, then you're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have eternal life. You know, all of life happens to hang on this one belief. I mean, it seems kind of arbitrary that if you happen to believe this. You know, why, don't, why isn't it about something like the thing that really matters is, is are you a loving person or are you a decent person? Do you treat people well? Um, it seems arbitrary and it seems narrow. Well, as we, you know, we go along, I want to try to answer that question. But first, let me say one reason why I think that God requires of us something we believe, not something we do. You know, anyone who's a psychologist or studies human life and behavior uh, will know that how a person acts, their behavior, what they do, is symptomatic of realities much deeper inside of them, right? We, we do things based on our emotions or, and, you know, what's inside of us. We act out of our, what's inside of us. And then our emotions are, come from even deeper places of deep-held beliefs about ourselves and about the world and about other people and ultimately about God. That's where all our behavior comes from. So to simply say that God cares about what you do is superficial. It would be superficial for God to say that's really what's important. God cares about something deeper. What's in our hearts? That's why Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, how we act comes from within. So it makes perfect sense for the Bible to say God's priority is not what you do, but what you believe. And in particular, the belief that makes someone a Christian, this transformative belief, is the gospel. And Jesus says the gospel is like a, a little seed. It's very small. It's kind of unassuming. You think it really doesn't have much power. But when it's planted in the center of your life, it begins to germinate and it grows roots and it turns into this great tree that bears fruit of, of joy and kindness and love and eternal life. And so it's this little unassuming seed, this little belief that we're going to talk about this morning. And uh, what is that belief? Well, it's a story that tells us three things. That Jesus is God, that Jesus is king, and that Jesus is savior. Those are the three things. Jesus, Jesus is God, Jesus is king, Jesus is savior. And the Bible says that when you embrace those three truths, a kind of life comes into you that not even death can destroy. So what is the deep belief that God says we all need? Okay, the gospel. And it's three things. The first is this. Gospel says that Jesus 
is God. And we can see that in particular in two places in this passage. You see it first, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, conceives by the Holy Spirit as a virgin. And her husband, Joseph, decides that he's going to divorce her. But then an angel meets him to explain to him what's happening. And you see what, it's the, uh, what, the, uh, what it says in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament, the creator of heaven and earth from the Old Testament. And then Matt, and so Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, but then Matthew goes on and says, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, you would expect that he would say, well, you shall, you shall call his name Yahweh saves because Yahweh is going to save his people from their sins. But it doesn't say that. It says you shall call him Yahweh saves because Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And if that hint wasn't strong enough, he's more explicit in the next verse, in verse 22, where it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God become a man to dwell in the earth and among humanity. And so the first thing the gospel says is that Jesus Christ is God become a human. And the fact that Jesus is God answers two questions for us. It both tells us who is Jesus. It also tells us who is God. And I want to talk about each of those questions. So first it tells us who is Jesus Christ. And, you know, throughout the gospels you see that Jesus identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament, the creator of heaven and earth. And, you know, I, I, we just have to feel how shocking that is for Jesus to say, I am the God of the Old Testament. You, know, you just imagine someone in Bellingham that came into our church and they had been saying, yeah, I, I, I created the Milky Way. You know, the stars in the sky created them. And then there, your digestive system, I created your digestive system. And Mount Baker, I created Mount Baker. And narwhals, you know, I just saw a website about how deep narwhals can go in the ocean. I invented narwhals, too. All this, and you'd say, well, okay, that's great. Welcome. You can't serve in the children's nursery, but, like, <laughs> we're glad to have you here. Okay? You'd say he's mad. We would not say, wow, this guy's a, a moral teacher. He's an exemplar to our, for our children. We wouldn't say that. And yet these kinds of claims is precisely what Jesus said. And not only did his closest disciples believe it. You know, his closest disciples for three years, they lived with him. They slept, you know, you, if you've had a roommate, you know what your roommate's really like. And I'm like, I know this roommate is not God because he leaves his clothes everywhere. You know, they lived with Jesus and they knew his character. And they said, this, this guy is like no one else. And then a whole civilization for the next 1,800 years said that they believed him. And what that tells us, if a whole civilization says that this man is not insane, there is a sanity to him. And this is an important point, is that there is literally no one, even uh, no one else in history, who has ever made such a radical claim. You know, there have been other people who have claimed to be God, but they're all tyrants. And we all think, you're, uh, no, you're crazy. There's no one who's been virtuous, who has also said that they are God. He is the unique human in history. And, you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton, his, his great book, The Everlasting Man, is, is Chesterton's kind of sweeping survey of human civilization. In the, in the conclusion of his book, 
He's talking about all the things that, ha- you know, the ways of, of human religion and culture and civilization. And at the end of that book, he says, right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception. It is quite unlike anything else. It is a thing final like the trump of doom, though it is also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, or right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths, the man who made the world. I love that phrase. Jesus is the man who made the world. And so the first, you know, when we say Jesus is God, it first answers the question, wow, it's a startling starting statement about who the person of Jesus Christ is. But it also answers the second question for us, is who is God? What is God like? How does God think and act and speak? What does God do? What does God think of me? The Bible says if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the express image of the invisible God. He shows God to us concretely in flesh and blood. Which is, you know, a surprising thing also to think about. Because, you know, usually when we talk about, like, what is God like? You know, I always picture, you know, a group of guys sitting around the pub having some beers. And they're like, what do you think about God? And everyone says, yeah, you know, this is what I think about God. God's like in the sky and he's this energy. Or someone else is like, I don't think God even cares about us. I mean, our planet is so small in the universe. He doesn't even care about it. And other people is like, I think God is in the trees. Or, you know. They're just making it up. It's just like, I was just making stuff up about what God is like. And it's all speculation. And, you know, I, when I was in uh, uh, high school, I've shared with some of you that I got in a lot of trouble when I was in high school. My parents had me sent away for a year and a half. And there was a kind of mythology that had formed around Nate Walker, who's a you know, people had never met me. They were like, yeah, he's so bad. He got sent away for a year and a half. And actually, a guy who became, like, my best friend later, he didn't meet me. He had never met me before. And he heard about Nate Walker. He had this picture in his mind. They're like, I'm, like, 6'6", and I've got tattoos all over my body. And they're just like, Nate Walker's back. And then I met him. He's like, you're Nate Walker? Like, <laughs> not impressed. <laughs> you can have all these speculations, but when the real person walks in the room, the speculating stops. The speculating about God has stopped because God has walked in the room in Jesus Christ. And we stop guessing what he's like and we begin to listen and say, who does Jesus say that God is? And it turns out that who we find out God is in Jesus is delightfully shocking. And N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, he puts it this way. He says, let us suppose that this God were to become human. What would such a God look like? This is the really scary thing that many never come to grips with. Not that Jesus might be identified with a remote, lofty, imaginary being. Any fool could see the flaw in that idea. But that God, the real God, the one true God, might actually be like Jesus. And not a droopy, pre-Raphaelite Jesus either, but a shrewd Palestinian Jewish villager who drank wine with his friends agonized over the plight of his people, taught in strange stories and pungent aphorisms, and was executed by the occupying forces. To say that Jesus is God is, of course, to make a startling statement about Jesus, 
it is also to make a stupendous claim about God. So the first thing the story of the gospel is about is God becoming a man in Jesus Christ, which tells us something startling about who the person of Jesus is. It also tells us something startling about who God is. But the story of the gospel is not just about God coming, but it's about God also coming to do something. And uh, that uh, leads to our second point, that not only Jesus is God, but second, Jesus is king. And this passage I just read uh, begins by saying this in verse 18. You see what it says there. Now, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, as someone who didn't grow up in the church, I always thought Christ was Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, many of you know, Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. And uh, the, the king of the Jews who was going to be a son of David. And so for Matthew's original audience, the people that he was writing for, when they heard that first line, verse 18, what they would have heard is, now the birth of Jesus the king took place in this way. Jesus is the true king of the world who's come. And so when we come to believe the gospel, you know, and we believe that Jesus is both God and king, it means that believing in him involves our allegiance to this king. That's what he's calling us to, is, is into a kingdom, to give him his allegiance. But on the other hand, Jesus' uh, kingship means that believing the gospel means believing that Jesus is coming to heal the world, to establish a kingdom. And there are many uh, descriptions of this kingdom. You read through the Old Testament, and we've read several of them during our Advent readings uh, and from Isaiah and from other parts of the Old Testament. I want to read one to you. This is one description of that kingdom from Isaiah 61. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And the word anointed, that's the Christ, that's the Messiah, the, the anointed one. He's anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the, of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The Old Testament is filled with passages like this one. The promise of a king who's going to bring this kingdom where the poor are cared for and they're welcomed in, the brokenhearted are comforted, and the sad are, you know, they're cheered up, and, and the captives are set free, and ruin, you know, the ruin that had been done to civilization will be rebuilt. And there is something deep in our souls, a deep uh, kind of communal memory that we all have that hungers for a king like this. And uh, if you don't think that's true, that we hunger for a king like this, then you, you just look at how emotionally charged our allegiances are to our political leaders and our culture. Why so much emotion? Why so much devotion? Why so much emotion about people who oppose our leaders? Who is going to lead us into peace and prosperity? That is the question that all of us are asking. Who's going to be the leader? And in this regard, we have to understand that Christmas is a deeply political day. 
And when I say it's a political day, I'm not saying that it's a Republican or a Democrat kind of day. It's just the opposite. It's about the birth of the true king, the king of all kings, who demands all of our allegiance. And when we say Jesus is king, it says we believe there is a future of hope in this world that he is bringing. And so that means that all of us, should we be engaged in our politics? Absolutely. Politics impact our lives uh, deeply. But our political allegiances are always tempered by our supreme allegiance to Jesus as the true king. Christians, people who have believed the gospel, are people who believe that Jesus the king will destroy all the evil in the world and bring ultimate peace. Now one thing that's so interesting is when I say to you, God is going to destroy all the evil in the world, does that sound like a good thing? Well, yeah, of course it sounds good that God would destroy all the evil in the world. Why? Because we think that evil is something out there. There's this evil out there, and it'd be great if God cleaned all that up. And, you know, whenever we tell stories about saviors of the world, that's what they do, is that there are these enemies out there that they're going to save us from. So, you know, if you watch the Avengers, how does the first Avengers end? You know, there are aliens coming out of the sky, and they're all monsters, and they all look exactly the same, and the Avengers have come to save all the decent people of New York. And these good people need to be rescued by the saviors. And we think that way. Liberals think we need to be saved from Donald Trump and his supporters. Conservatives think we need to be saved from the progressive agenda that is destroying our company, or our country. Well, Jews in Jesus' day thought something very similar. They thought we need to be saved from the Romans. They are our enemies. And when their king comes, he will save them from their enemies. And then the gospel comes, Jesus comes, and twists this whole thing on its head. Because Matthew here is at the beginning of Jesus' life. He's recording the birth of the true king. And what does he say in verse 21? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not going to save them from the sins of the Romans. And by the way, the Romans were brutal. The Romans were oppressive. And you think, the Savior's going to come and rescue. No, he's not going to rescue you from them. He's going to rescue you from you. Jesus is the king who came to save the world from evil, but the problem is that he says that that evil is in all of us. You know, if I could quote Chesterton again, he, in the early, uh, uh, early 20th century, the London Times had put out a question to a bunch of authors saying, write in your answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote in three simple lines. Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. I'm the one who's wrong with the world. Part of believing the gospel is coming to terms with evil is not just something out there. It is something inside each one of us. And so how can Jesus the king rid the world of evil without ridding the world of me? Well, that's why the gospel says a third thing we need to believe. Not just that Jesus is God. Not just that Jesus is king. But also that Jesus is savior. And that's the question. How will Jesus save his people from their sins? And I think this passage answers that in kind of a subtle way because uh, Jesus' birth was scandalous. You see there in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved 
to divorce her quietly. Now, by the way, you know, I know a lot of people in our culture say, you know, way back 2,000 years ago, they thought that women just got pregnant magically. By the, and, and the reason we can't believe in that now is we're scientific people, and we've kind of grown out of that. But we see clearly in this story, Joseph knows how it works. He knows my, okay, my fiance is pregnant. I know how that happened, so he was going to divorce her. So clearly that's not, that. Uh, they knew how that works just as well as we do. So the gospel begins with an embarrassment with scandalous beginnings. And it shows that the essence of Jesus' mission as Savior was for himself to be embarrassed, to be shamed, and even scandalized for us. He does not run from scandal. He lives in it. And ultimately, Jesus' scandal was to to bear our sins on himself on the cross, to take the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. He dies the death that we should have died This is how Paul puts it. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as we come back to the the comments I made at the beginning of this sermon, that our deepest beliefs shape our behavior. Psychologists will also tell you that a sense of self-worth is one of the deepest beliefs that's driving our lives. And I want you to think of the power of having this belief at the center of who you are, that Jesus, who is God, who is king, loved me enough to pay the penalty for my sin. He paid for my life with his own blood. Now imagine that that's the center of your identity, your beliefs, and your emotions. That Jesus' blood paid for me. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I I used to collect uh, baseball cards. And I had one baseball, my favorite baseball card was a, a Frank Thomas rookie card, upper deck. And I had it in this plastic case. And I went to my dad and I said, Dad, you see this card right here? It's worth $10. <laughs> my dad was like, oh, really? Is someone offered to give you $10 for that? And I was like, well, I mean, no, I, the, the magazine said it was worth $10. He says, Some, something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. You want to know about your self-worth? You are only worth what someone is willing to pay for you. And if you are in Christ, you have been bought by the blood of the Son of God. There's nothing more valuable in heaven or in earth. That is the love of Christ. This is called grace. That is how, how does Jesus save us? Through grace. Love you don't deserve. You want self-worth? You want to feel security? You'll find no worth or security anywhere in the world like this. In Jesus Christ, I am loved despite the evil inside of me. And what is the belief that God says that you must have at the center of who you are? It's both an honesty about how broken you are. That I need to be saved not from my enemies, I need to be saved from myself. Combined with the trust in how deeply loved you are. And you only have both those when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So this is the gospel that Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is Savior. Jesus shows us what God is like. He is the man who made the world. Jesus is the only king we can ultimately trust to bring peace to the world. He's the king of kings. He trumps Trump, if you will. Jesus is the only one who can give us honest, unconditional love. And you need them all. Do you know this hope? So this Christmas... Jesus Christ, God, King, and Savior, commands you, he bids you. 
He calls you to believe and you will live. Let's pray together.